be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 24, beginning in verse 29. Genesis 24. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Rebekah had a brother whose name was Laban, and Laban ran out to the man by the well. So it came to pass, when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrist, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah, saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man, and there he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. Then the man came to the house, and he unloaded the camels, and provided straw and feed for the camels, and water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have told about my errand. And he said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. Now my master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I dwell, but you shall go to my father's house and to my family and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I walk will send his angel with you and prosper your way, and you shall take a wife for my son from my family and from my father's house. You will be clear from this oath when you arrive among my family, for if they will not give her to you, then you will be released from my oath. And this day I came to the well and said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, if you will now prosper the way in which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water, and it shall come to pass that when the virgin comes out to draw water, and I say to her, Please give me a little water from your pitcher to drink. And she says to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. But before I had finished speaking in my heart, there was Rebekah coming out with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down to the well and drew water. And I said to her, Please let me drink. And she made haste and let her pitcher down from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels a drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels a drink also. Then I asked her and said, Whose daughter are you? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the nose ring on her nose and the bracelets on her wrists, and I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for his son. Now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, and if not, tell me, that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, either good or bad. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass, when Abraham's servant heard their words, that he worshipped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver and jewelry of gold and clothing and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank and stayed all night. Then they arose in the morning, and he said, "'Send me away to my master.' But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that she may go. And he said to them, Do not hinder me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, so that I may go to my master. So they said, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. 
So they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands, of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lechairoi, and for he dwelt in the south. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening, and he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. For she had said to the servant, Who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. And she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, this morning we once more return to ancient Mesopotamia, to the servant's mission to obtain a bride for Isaac, the son of promise. Last Lord's Day, we saw that the Lord had directed the servant's footsteps and worked out all the details to arrange a meeting between Abraham's servant and Rebekah, the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, Nahor. The servant appropriately responded in thankful worship to the providence of God in bringing all of this about. In the second half of the chapter this morning, we we see that the servant can Continuing on his mission, he meets Rebecca's family, uh, and a decision is made that she will go with him. And then he brings Rebecca back to the promised land, to the land of Canaan, where she meets Isaac, and the two of them are united in marriage. The text continues the themes that we saw last week of God's sovereignty over the events and the servants' thankful worship. But the high point of the second half of this chapter uh, is when Isaac and Rebecca meet and are united together as husband and wife. Uh, it's a lovely picture of marriage, and it's worth exploring the details of this story. Did you see just how special this marriage is? But it's also quite obvious from the text that this marriage is about more than just Isaac and Rebecca and their happiness. There's more going on here, and it serves as a lesson to us about our own marriages and the purposes that God intended in the institution of marriage. So uh, let's look through the story, meet Rebecca's family, and explore uh, the marriage of Isaac and Rebecca. And we've just read the text, uh, and we've seen that the servant meets Rebecca's family, and it's clear that her father plays a very minor role in the events. Uh, of this chapter. Her brother Laban takes the lead rather than her father. And so some commentators suggest that uh, Bethuel is elderly and, and therefore his eldest son Laban sees to the affairs of the household. Others think that Bethuel is even dead at this point. Uh, he's only mentioned once in verse 50, and some take that actually to be a mention of a younger brother who is named after the father. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that Laban takes the lead here in the proceedings in this chapter. He seems to be uh, the male who is speaking as the head of the household. Laban and Rebekah's mother are mentioned several times. Laban speaks for the family. And in verse 53, after the family gives its consent to the proposed marriage, 
we read this. Then the servant brought out jewelry of silver, jewelry of gold and clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave precious things to her brother and to her mother. So gifts for the bride and for her brother and her mother, but the father is not mentioned as receiving any gifts. So Laban is, for all intents and purposes, the head of the household, regardless of whatever status may be with Bethuel. Laban will play a large role in coming chapters, chapters 29 through 31. Laban is a key figure uh, in his interactions with Jacob. And, And we've just seen a hint of his character here. Notice in verse 30 that it says, So it came to pass, when he saw the nose ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he heard the words of his sister Rebekah, saying, Thus the man spoke to me, that he went to the man. Laban saw the costly gold jewelry that was given to his sister. He heard her report about a wealthy stranger with a caravan of camels at the well, and he jumps into action. Now, he proves to be a good host, providing for the animals, washing the feet of his guests, providing a meal for them. But we've gotten a hint here of his affection for material wealth. And we can see that Laban is something of an opportunist. Uh, He seeks the blessing of the Lord, not by obedience to the Lord, but by getting close to the Lord's servants. And we'll see this same behavior work itself out again as he interacts with Jacob in chapters 29 through 31. So this chapter is sort of setting up uh, the person of Laban for us as we'll encounter him later in the history. We also see that Abraham's servant here is eager to continue and to complete his mission. So he won't even eat until he has told them what his errand is, why he is there. And so he relates to Rebekah's family the events of the chapter, of Abraham's task that he has given him as concerned to find a bride for his son from among his own family, his arriving at the well and praying to the Lord, and then Rebekah's appearance at just that particular moment and the actions that she engaged in and how all of this is the work of God to provide a bride for Isaac. He says in verse 48, And I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord God of my master Abraham, who had led me in the way of truth to take the daughter of my master's brother for my son. And then he comes to the point and he asks them the final question, Are they agreeable to this marriage? Verse 49, Now if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell me, And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Now, Rebecca can't possibly be the only eligible young woman from among Abraham's extended family. Bethuel, her father, was the youngest of eight sons born to Nahor and his wife, Milcah. And there are another four sons born to his concubine. So Bethuel is one of 12 sons. Surely there are other granddaughters. If Rebekah's family were to refuse to allow the marriage to proceed, then the servant would be forced to look elsewhere among Abraham's other relations. But this time Laban and Bethuel are named and they give their consent to the marriage in verse 50 and 51. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing comes from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, either good or bad. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. 
So they readily acknowledge that God is in this, that God has, as the servant explained to them, worked out all of the details, and they have no desire to go against the God of Abraham. And so they give their consent to this proposed marriage. And once again, the servant responds to this event with worship of God who has brought all of this to pass. And then he gives gifts to the young woman and to her brother and her mother. They share a meal and then everyone goes to bed for the night. But the next morning, the servant arises and he is eager to take Rebekah and return to Isaac with the chosen bride. And so he says in verse 55, 54, Then they arose in the morning, and he said, Send me away to my master. But her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman stay with us a few days, at least ten. After that, she may go. So the family wants a delay of about ten days, and one can hardly blame them. Abraham had left their family home some 65 years earlier, and they haven't seen him since. They know that when they let Rebekah leave, and go with Abraham's servant, they are likely not to see her again in this life. And so they want some time with her. This would be a difficult parting. We can understand uh, their sentiment. But the servant insists that he must get on with the task and bring Rebekah to Isaac. And so they decide to leave it to Rebekah. So they said in verse 57, We will call the young woman and ask her personally. Then they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Now she was going to go. This had already been established the previous day in verse 51. So they're not asking her here if she's willing to consent to the marriage. They're asking her, Are you willing to leave right now uh, without a period of time to spend with your family before you uh, head out for the rest of your life. And, and she says that she is. She's willing to go with the servant uh, to con- submit herself to the will of God in this and to go meet uh, this man who will be her husband. This has been an incredibly uh, exciting 24 hours for Rebecca. She met this obviously wealthy man at the city well, uh, but found out that he was only a servant. Wealth wasn't his. He served another master. And then she found out that that master was her grandfather's brother and that his purpose in coming was to find a bride for his master's son who had been made heir of all that his master owned. And then he says that God had led him to her, that she was the chosen bride for this wealthy prince in a foreign land. And so she's eager to be off and to go meet this new prince who will be her husband. Her family offers her a blessing before she parts, and they, they load up the camels and begin the journey back to the promised land. Now, remember that this is a journey of roughly 20 days, and again, it's, it's glossed over in, in one verse, in verse 61. Then Rebekah and her maids arose, and they rode on the camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. Now, I'm sure during this 20 days or so that they're traveling from Rebekah's home to the land of Canaan, Rebekah probably pestered the servant nearly incessantly with questions about Isaac. And I'm sure that she was curious, as any of us would be, well, what is he like? Does he have other wives or concubines? What's, what's he look like? Is he handsome? What is my life going to be like in this strange land that you're taking me to? In verse 62, 
all of a sudden they're there, they arrive. And, and the, the narrative switches to focus now on Isaac. He's been spoken of, but he's been absent from the narrative since chapter 22. But now we read here in verse 62, Now Isaac came from the way of Beer Lechairoi, for he dwelt in the south. Now, it seems that Isaac had moved south from uh, where we had seen him last. At the end of chapter 22, the beginning of chapter 23, when Sarah passes away and they bury Sarah, Abraham is in Hebron, and we would assume that Isaac was with him. But Isaac is now moved south. He's moved quite a ways south, further south even than Beersheba, where Abraham had dwelt for a time. It's possible that he had done this in order to find pasture land for the flocks, but he's living down near this place that is named Beer Lehi Roy. Now this translates to the well of the one who lives and sees me. The well of the one who lives and sees me. Now if that rings a bell, you might remember this from chapter 16. Hagar, uh, Sarah's handmaiden, had fled from Sarah's harsh treatment uh, and wandered south back towards Egypt. And we're told in chapter 16, verse 7, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. So she's headed toward Egypt, her home where she was from, and the Lord finds her, and the Lord speaks to her, and he tells her to return to her master Sarah and, and to submit herself to Sarah's treatment. But then he promises her that she will have a son that she will bear a son, that she is to name him Ishmael, and the Lord promises that he will be the father of a multitude of descendants. In response, she then names God the God who sees. And we're told in chapter 16, verse 14, therefore the well was called Bir Lechai Roy, the well of the one who lives and sees me. So that's where Isaac is living, which is kind of interesting in itself that he has ended up in this place where Hagar had before been in her loneliness, having fled from Sarah and had been found by the Lord who lives and who sees. And so Isaac now uh, is 40 years old. He has gone to the same location uh, where she had encountered the Lord previously, and he is living there. And we learn from verse 67 that Isaac has set up Sarah's tent there at this place that he has established. So it appears that in faith he was preparing to receive his bride. He had taken his mother's tent with him and set it up in anticipation of the servant returning with a bride for him. And as the wife of Isaac, who is the heir of all of Abraham's wealth, this new bride would become the matriarch of the household. And she would need her own tent as she administers the household. So Isaac is a man of faith, trusting God to provide his bride. And in verse 63, we see his faith once more and the sort of faith that it is. It says, And Isaac went out to meditate in the field in the evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked, and there the camels were coming. So Isaac has gone out into the field to meditate. This isn't the sort of meditation that involves emptying your mind and repeating a a, a mantra over and over again like we might see practiced in Eastern pagan religions or even today in our own culture. Isaac is meditating in the biblical sense. He's not emptying his mind. He's filling it with God's words 
meditating and thinking on the promises that God has previously made to the family, it's probable that they had committed God's words to memory. And so Isaac is thinking over what God has said and what God has promised. He's remembering God's words, probably even engaging in prayer as he meditates and ponders the promises of God. And he's praying and and he's chosen to go out into a field to do this. It's the still of evening. It's quiet. It's not entirely dark yet. He's able to see the camels coming, but it's evening. It's peaceful. He's surrounded by the beauty of God's creation. Now, some of you, Stu and Sean particularly, I know, know exactly what I'm describing here. To be out in the field in the quiet of the evening, to hear the the quiet sounds of nature and the peacefulness of it. It's as if the creation is quietly humming the glory of its creator. And so Isaac is there meditating on the promises of God, praying about those promises, praying for a successful return of the servant with a bride. And he looks up in the midst of his prayer meditation and he sees the camels returning from their journey. Now he knows how many men left with the servant and he sees that there are more people returning than left. So he knows the journey was a success. There's a bride coming seems that God has answered his prayers by bringing Rebekah to him in the evening near a well where he is living just as he was praying. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? God brought Rebekah to the servant near a well in the evening just as he was praying. It's an amazing detail that the Lord worked into the events of the history and one that I'm sure they discussed in, at length in the days and years to come. And can you imagine what must have been going through Isaac's mind at this point? He doesn't know who the woman is that the servant is returning with. He has no idea what she's like. She's supposed to be his wife, and he's never met her. It's a lot of trust, trusting in the Lord to provide the appropriate wife for him. And so he lifts his eyes from prayer and meditation, and he sees that here she is. And then the next verse says, in verse 64, Then Rebekah lifted her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from her camel. I love how in verse 63, Isaac lifted his eyes and saw Rebekah. In verse 64, Rebekah lifted her eyes and saw Isaac. Where he is living is in the south, as I said, and it's even further south than Beersheba, where where Abraham had previously dwelt. Uh, Hebron was where they had been when the servant was sent away to go find a bride. And, and where he is living now is some 70 to 75 miles further south than Hebron. So if Isaac and Abraham are in different locations at this point, which is quite probable, Abraham may even have sent Isaac out to kind of establish his own home now that a bride is coming to him. Besides which, they had been in Hebron when they sent the servant to go find a bride. If, the, if they had all left and moved 75 miles south, how would the servant have found them? So Abraham has pr- probably stayed in Hebron so that when the servant returns, he can direct him to where Isaac is. So it's possible that they've already stopped in Hebron and met Abraham and have now continued south to find Isaac. So they've added three, four, maybe five days to their journey. They've been on camels for a long time, three, almost four weeks 
Rebecca's tired. It's been a long journey. She's weary from her travels, and as she rides on the camel with her head down, the servant has told her, we're almost there. It's worth pressing on to get there tonight. And then she lifts her eyes, and she looks ahead, and she sees a man standing in the field coming toward them. And the new King James says she dismounted from her camel. The King James says she lighted off the camel, which kind of gives the impression that she jumped. Neither one of them really captures the sense of the Hebrew word. The last time this word was used was in chapter 17, where it was used twice. Chapter 17, verse 3, then Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him. And then verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. That's the Hebrew word. He fell on his face. I don't think it means that Rebecca fell off the camel. Some commentators suggest that, that she was in shock or fear of meeting her new husband, and so she literally fell off the camel. I don't think that's what it says. I think it's meaning that she jumped off the camel in haste in order to bow herself before Isaac, to present herself in a posture of submission as soon as she met him. Verse 65 explains to us, for or because she had said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it is my master. So she took a veil and covered herself. So because she knew it was Isaac, the one that she was to marry, she dismounts the camel and presents herself in a posture of humility. John Gill says that she fell from it, not accidentally or through surprise, but willingly and in honor to Isaac. So the two have lifted up their eyes and seen each other from a distance, and now Rebecca falls off her camel into a posture of humility before this man who will be her husband. And verse 66 tells us that the servant then relayed the entire story to Isaac, all that God had done, working out all of these details to provide a bride for him. And then we get to verse 67. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, And he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So I want us to consider three levels of blessing that attend a godly marriage, beginning with the immediate blessings and benefits of marriage to the parties involved, to the husband and wife. As I've noted here, Isaac prepared Sarah's tent for his new bride. She was to be the woman of the house from this time forward to run the domestic affairs of the family. One benefit of marriage is the sharing of the burden of labor. Isaac has a business to attend to, flocks and herds and a multitude of servants and employees to manage. Rebecca will manage the female staff and see to the domestic affairs of keeping house. Working together by dividing the labor will assure that everything is taken care of and the household is managed well. And we know this is God's design for the family. The New Testament instructs us that each one is to work in quietness and eat their own bread. In First Thessalonians three or Second Thessalonians three twelve, we're told in First Timothy, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And that's in reference to caring for an aged and widowed mother or grandmother. How much more your own wife and children? God's design is that the husband would provide for his family. The wife is to manage the house and the children. We're told in Titus 2, 
that we should admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, so that the word of God may not be blasphemed. Even the younger widows are instructed in 1 Timothy, Therefore I desire that the younger widows marry, bear children, manage the house, give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. This is God's design for the home, that each spouse has a role to play in the management of the household. A husband is the head of the house. He provides financially. The wife manages the affairs of the home. And we see that this is exactly what is about to happen in the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. Furthermore, we're told that wives are to submit to and obey their husbands. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, Paul writes in Ephesians. And we've seen that Rebecca was quick to submit herself to the will of God. Yes, I'll go. This is the will of God. She jumps off the camel, falls on her face in submission to Isaac before she has even met him. Husbands are likewise to love their wives, we're told in Ephesians. And we're told that Isaac did just that in verse 67, and he loved her. And in this union of man and wife, There's not only a division of labor in the household, but there's comfort to be found. We're told that Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. It's been three years since Sarah passed away. Isaac is grieved for the loss, and here he finds comfort in his wife. If we follow these scriptural guidelines in our own marriages, we can enjoy these same benefits. If wives submit to their husbands in the Lord and husbands truly love their wives in sacrificial ways, there is mutual comfort and peace, and they both see their responsibilities in the home, it will be well managed. It will become a place of rest and comfort for both of them. But there are benefits of the marriage that go beyond the immediate blessings for the husband and the wife. Look at the blessing that Rebecca's family offers her before she leaves home in verse 60. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become the mother of thousands, of ten thousands, and may your descendants possess the gates of those who hate them. Now first, here is another instance of the providence of God. The blessing that they offer Rebekah echoes the blessing that God gave to Abraham and Isaac with him on the mountain In chapter 22, just after they had sacrificed the ram, there God said, Blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. So Rebekah is given the same blessing by her family, the same blessing that Isaac inherits through Abraham a covenantal blessing of a multitude of descendants, a great nation, one that will be victorious, conquering their enemies. That's what it means when it says they'll possess the gate of their enemies. It means you control the city if you control the gate, so you've conquered. There's a covenantal blessing to be found in marriage. Children, we are told in Psalm 127, are a blessing from the Lord, a reward even. But children are likewise blessed by the marriage of their parents. The benefits of marriage extend to the children who are raised in a well-run and godly home by their father and mother. Now, our society 
at large would disavow this idea today. They would claim that uh, homosexual marriages or single parents can provide uh, the same benefits to the children. But in the context of science, where they actually look at statistics, even the world agrees with what Scripture teaches. Sociologist David Popino from Rutgers University says, the burden of social science evidence supports the idea that gender-differentiated parenting is important for human development and that the contribution of fathers to childbearing is unique and irreplaceable. We should disavow the notion that mommies can make good daddies, just as we should disavow the popular notion that daddies can make good mommies. The two sexes are different to the core, and each is necessary culturally and biologically for the optimal development of children. Now, he's arguing from the scientific evidence that shows that children benefit from having both a father and a mother, not two dads, not two moms, a father and a mother, male and female. Speaking to this same issue, Brad Wilcox, a sociologist at the University of Virginia, writes that criminals come from broken homes at a disproportionate rate. Seventy percent of juveniles in state reform schools, 72 percent of adolescent murderers, and 60 percent of rapists grew up in fatherless homes. Additionally, he says that 35% of girls in the United States whose fathers left before age of six became pregnant as teenagers. And another 10% of girls in the United States whose fathers leave them between the ages of six and 18 become pregnant as teenagers. And only 5% of girls whose fathers stayed with them throughout childhood became pregnant as teenagers. It's important Now, these are statistics, and they're obviously the other side of the statistics. 30% of the criminals came from homes where the father and mother stayed together. But you can obviously see the principle at work here. And here's where it gets even more interesting. In a research article published at the National Institute of Health, we're told that children from single-parent and step-parent families have higher poverty rates and lower levels of education and occupational attainment than children who grew up with both their biological and or adoptive parents. They report greater substance use and risk-taking behavior such as smoking, drinking, and drug use. Further, these children are more likely to have sex at an early age, to be young and unmarried when they form their families, and to experience the dissolution of their own romantic unions. In other words, the benefits of a committed marriage confer a blessing to the children. Even those that are adopted experience a benefit that is greater than having a single biological parent. Marriage offers covenantal blessings to the children. Now again, this doesn't mean that there's no hope for a single mom or a single dad. These statistics are averages. There are exceptions to every statistic There are criminals who come from homes where mom and dad stay together. Isaac and Rebecca's children are not shining examples. All parents must rely on the grace of God in the raising of their children. But actions have consequences. And when mom and dad do not stay together, the one that is left raising the children will need to rely on the grace of God even more than normal. And what this does mean is that God's design works. What God has designed for the family is best for the children. Even the world agrees with this. 
There are covenantal blessings for the children who are raised in a godly home. This is especially true in the lives of Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac was the son of promise. Rebekah was, according to verse 44, the woman whom the Lord had appointed for my master's son. It was through their descendants that the promise would ultimately be fulfilled. That blessing that Rebekah received was that so closely matched the blessing God had promised to Isaac on the mountain. The Apostle Paul quotes it. The very next verse, after God made that promise to Abraham and Isaac, the next verse is the verse that Paul quotes in the book of Galatians and applies it to Christ. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That seed who is Christ would come through Isaac and Rebekah's descendants. Their marriage has covenantal blessings for us 4,000 years later. So consider your own marriage and know that marriage is about more than just the husband and the wife. It's about God's purposes in the world. And it can have far-reaching ramifications and blessings for your descendants. But now that we've brought up the connection between Isaac and Rebekah's marriage and Christ, let's consider the grand purpose of marriage in the Bible. In Genesis 1.27, we read, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, that was the overview. And then we get to chapter 2, and we're given more details. And there we find that God made Adam first and then said it wasn't good that he would be alone. So God made Eve to be Adam's wife. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Then it was very good. God, by his very nature, lives eternally in fellowship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For man to be made in his image means, at least in part, that we are designed to be in fellowship with others. And the closest fellowship that we have in the flesh is with our spouse. So this is a reflection of the very nature of God in whose image we are made. But the Apostle Paul tells us that it's even more than that. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, let, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church." Marriage, by its very nature, is about Christ and the church. 
Marriage is designed to be a picture for us of the love Christ has for his bride and her submission and obedience to him. The Scottish reformer Ralph Erskine put it this way, The bride of Christ will sure be very loth to make his love a pillow for her sloth. Why, mayn't she sin the more that grace abounds? Oh, God forbid, the very thought confounds. When dead unto the law, she's dead to sin. How can she any longer live therein? To neither of them is she now a slave, but shares the conquest of the great, the brave, the mighty general, her victorious head, who broke the double chain to free the bride. Hence, prompted now with gratitude and love, her cheerful feet in swift obedience move. More strong the cords of love to duty draw than hell and all the curses of the law. Marriage is about Christ and his bride, his love for the church and the church's submission and obedience to its head, who is Christ. Consider Abraham, or Isaac and Rebekah as they point the way forward to Christ and his church. The father sends his servant to find a bride for his son. The servant goes, takes the bride from among her own people, accompanies her through the wilderness, telling her of her husband until he finally presents her to Isaac at the end of their journey. Henry Morris says in his commentary, in type, of course, the servant is the Holy Spirit, the paraclete who accompanies the church through the world's wilderness, teaching her the things of Christ and showing things to come until finally he presents her to Christ at the end of the journey. Rebecca, as a bride, is the type of the church. She is chosen by God. Ephesians 1.4, a chaste bride, 2 Corinthians 11.2, who left all to go to the Son, loving him before she even saw him, 1 Peter 1.7-8, and submitting herself to him, Ephesians 5.22, and is finally united to him in marriage at the end of the journey, Revelation 19.7. Dr. Warren Gage, professor of Old Testament at Knox Theological Seminary, says this, Certainly, Rebecca is a type of the church, the bride of Christ. Our betrothal began with the sovereign choice of God the Father to take a bride for his beloved son. Once we were chosen, a great price was paid for our particular redemption, and we, like Rebecca, were called to leave everything behind in order to persevere through the pilgrimage of this life to our own wedding one day to be celebrated in a promised country. And Isaac serves as a type for Christ. Pastor Brad Mills says that Isaac is a type of Christ who was born in miraculous circumstances and has already passed through a type of death and resurrection in chapter 22. He is the promised son of the father who inherits all that the father has. He goes and prepares a place for his bride in anticipation of her arrival. He loves her and unites himself to him forever. As David Schrock says, we have reason to read Genesis 24 as a narrative meant to point us to Christ. We should likewise see the account of Isaac and Rebekah's marriage as patterned after the original marriage in Genesis chapter 2 and foreshadowing a greater marriage. After all, this is the mystery of marriage, that every husband and wife are types of Christ and the church. That's the main point not just the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah that point us to Christ and his church. It's our marriages as well. The very institution of marriage points us to Christ and the church. 
The wife is to submit to her husband as the church submits to Christ as our head. Husbands are to love their wives in self-sacrificial ways just as Christ laid down his life for the church. So men, think about this. Every time you have an opportunity to serve your wife, even when it's hard and requires you to make sacrifices, to die to yourself, this is an opportunity for you to testify to the love Christ has for his people. And wives, every time you submit yourself to your husband's leadership, you are testifying to Christ's headship and preeminence over his church. That's amazing. Our marriages, everyday life, points toward Christ and his church. As flawed as we are, as flawed as our marriages are, they are living testimonies to the truth of the gospel. They are testimonies to ourselves to remind us of the gospel. They are a testimony to our children to teach them the gospel. They are a testimony to the world to proclaim the gospel. Marriage is about more than just the man and the woman involved. It's about God's purpose in the world to redeem a people for himself in love. Isaac and Rebecca's marriage was a good thing for them personally. Their marriage provided comfort, security, and love for the two of them. But it was bigger than them. It had far-reaching consequences, covenantal blessings for their descendants, both according to the flesh and according to the spirit. And it typified Christ and the church pointing forward to the redemption of God's elect, to their sanctification and their union with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb, And the amazing thing is that all three of these layers of blessing in their marriage exist in ours as well. Marriage is a good thing for a husband and a wife. Provides comfort, mutual support and love and blessing. It provides a covenantal blessing to their children and their extended family. Most importantly, each and every one of our marriages points us towards Christ. It reminds us of his love, encourages us in our sanctification, and gives us hope as we anticipate our final union with him. As John wrote in the book of Revelation, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. Let's pray.